health is about more than just staying fit. And with every year that goes by, I'm becoming more and more fascinated by how what we eat can impact our health and our potential, with a particular focus on gut health and the gut microbiome. It's not just what I eat either, it's how I eat too. It's all connected. That's why I've developed my own number one living drinks brand. Number One Living is based on this idea, the simple notion that by putting our well-being first and improving the quality of what we put into our bodies, we get more out of life. My range of kombucha drinks are full of bacterial life cultures, designed for a happy and healthy gut. They're sugar-free, vegan and naturally sourced, so you can feel great on the inside and enjoy life on the outside. Choose from refreshing raspberry, passion fruit or our award-winning ginger and turmeric kombucha. The number one living range is widely available in Sainsbury's, Holland and Barrett's and Boots stores and online at numberoneliving.com. Grab yours today. Okay, on with the show. Hey, welcome back to I Am, the podcast that explores the possibilities and potential that we can access as human beings. I'm your host, Johnny Wilkinson. This week's guest on the I Am podcast is Alice Bull and her speciality is sophrology. It's a practice designed for enhancing our engagement in the present moment. Sophrology is definitely interesting to me because it's all about exploring the relationship we have with ourselves, with our gift and with our performance. It's a technique being employed all around the globe in sporting arenas for sure, but more and more also in the business world as well. Personally, I think it holds power in any field where people are finding themselves closing down due to stress and pressure, feeling trapped, uninspired or just overwhelmed. For me, our absolute involvement in the now and in life is what cultivates the ideal conditions for our potential to blossom and reveal itself in some way. New dimensions of understanding, of connection, perception, they all come into our awareness when we surrender our boundaries. And by losing ourselves to the now this way, we just channel more, I think, of our true being. And also a lot of how societies sort of, we go along in this, we call it ordinary level of consciousness, where we believe that we just go along on sort of autopilot really. And actually we create our lifestyle around how it's always been. We're not particularly conscious of what we're doing. We just, we see things as a threat because everyone says they're a threat and we don't actually stop and think. And then when we're able to get into a sort of this phronic area, this essence of being, you're actually able then to see for yourself and to say, well, actually, this isn't the reality. This is actually, this is my reality I'm creating, but it's actually based on either things that have come from my past that are triggering these sort of thoughts and feelings in my mind. And and those are creating emotions that are then affecting my actions and my behaviors, or actually this is something that someone is telling me and and it's not correct, but I'm believing it. And therefore when you're in that moment, you're able to say, well, I need to decide for myself and I can decide for myself if this is reality and I can actually create my reality. I have the choice to make my reality and to be able to choose. Actually, I don't want to be scared of this anymore. I want to be able to take a challenge. I want to be able to take on things that perhaps in the past would have created fear in me before. And that, I think, as you say, it's when you're in that zone, that area or the flow state or whatever, it's being very much almost closed off to the pressures from the outside world and being able to sort of act rather than react to everything, which is really powerful. So if this openness and this devotion to the here and now 
is what leaves us ready for intuition and higher intelligence, then why don't we spend more of our days, weeks and years in this state of allowing? What's holding us back from aligning with our potential all the time? The answer for me is the past and it's fear, but it's also having enough of a willingness to transcend our limits. We've had quite a few questions about how to let go of the past or fear and how to generate that kind of willingness or awareness. And I guess it's all about how to enter into this beautiful state of acceptance. I feel like this might be a good time to dig a bit deeper into it all. What comes out of the great chat that I had with Alice is that it's what we've already decided about life and about ourselves that leads us away from our power to truly respond to our situations and create unbelievable new ones. Conclusions are bound to be made if we're subjected to the same messages from others around us over and over again, especially when it's at an age when we're not capable of doing our own conscious research. This energy state of anxiety and selfish individualism, it's infectious. And seeing the same stuff happening around us all the time will eventually take its toll. Messages also come from the inside of us as well, in the form of our feelings. And big traumatic emotional reactions to events can definitely leave their mark. And they have the power to define huge segments of our life for us too, if we let them. It all amounts to forming systems, I guess, of belief, which seem to be self-reinforcing in nature. What we do is we use what's called the reticular activating system, which is a network of neurons at the base of the brain. And that area is goes out and looks for evidence of whatever you're telling it. So if you believe that you're not confident, that reticular activating system will go out and find evidence that you're not confident and show it to you. So you believe that's your truth. And it's key that that's what you believe is the truth. It's not necessarily the truth. That's how you see it. And so by using that reticular activating system, what we do is actually get the brain to start looking more for evidence of positive experiences or going back into the past for positive memories. So with athletes, it can be going back to and feeling and remembering sort of positive events that have happened in the past and then bringing that into the present so that their past is very much helping them understand how the body feels, helping them understand the emotions that they feel in the present. I find this so intriguing. The reticular activating system is recruited by our beliefs and our understandings and our state of being. And then it goes looking for evidence of what we've already committed to as truth. It's like a rigged investigation from the start. And it makes sense to me because I know that in my life when I've been suffering great anxiety and panic, I can't help but see threat everywhere. And when I come out of that threat unscathed, I reward the survival process and I validate the fear and all the panic rather than seeing the power of my ability to respond. I used to do this in all kinds of ways, whether it was going to school as a child or preparing for rugby games, whatever it be. And I find that our focus this way is often drawn intensely to the negatives. We remember these small number of things so vividly, but pay so little attention to the huge number of things that are going well and working out for us. It becomes easy to see how our outlook and our behaviour 
can become completely dominated by this unconscious process. You just have to listen to any conversation in any place at any time and you'll hear can't, never, always, impossible or you'll hear people talking about these types of people, what's right, wrong, good, bad, the shoulds and the shouldn'ts, whether it's life gets harder as you get older, I am who I am and I can't change, that's karma for you, that'll teach them, they'll get their comeuppance, it just goes on and on. These old, out-of-date ideas carry on speaking for themselves. We complain about society and its messaging, and yet all day, every day, we listen and then we add fuel to the fire in terms of what's coming out of our being as well. On some level then, the mind seems like it's designed to look after the safety and security of who we think we are, what we've identified ourselves as. And when we live through the mind this way, we're going to be drawn towards comfort. Alice mentions this as a big finding from her research and her work helping people to transcend their boundaries beyond this need for guarantees. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that, as you say, there is a comfort in that, even though you know it's not right, there is that comfort in going back to something because it's familiar and you almost know what the outcome is going to be. And so therefore it's more comfortable for us to know that than necessarily not knowing what the outcome is going to be. And certainly one of the things that we look at is going back in the past to previous childhood experiences and things like that. So we have become, I think, accustomed to building our identities from our conclusions of the past. A big one that I used all the time in my career, even as a strength, was that who I am is a result of all I've been through. But it's quite a limiting idea. And also what's, I guess, more staggering is that it's so easy to see. We're constantly redefining the meaning of what we've been through simply by our changing mood in the present. In one state of being, we'll look at our past or a certain period of our past in a certain way. When we're feeling differently, we'll look at it a different way. And with these changes in state of being or attitude or whatever it be, we become different people. So therefore the past has to change. So the way I look at it is that what we've been through is actually a result of all that we are now. The question is, can we become more responsible or response-able for who we are right now. How much do we want this is also another big question. So it may come down to hanging on to that story of who we are and reacting to it, or letting go of that story and responding according to something far bigger, an awareness and engagement in what really is. I do find that this need to know ourselves, we seem to derive strength from being able to talk about it and that knowing your own story, letting go is bound to be difficult. But responding, therefore, for me, is on behalf of the now me. And that's a movement towards potential. It's a movement into the unknown and vulnerability. Reacting is always on behalf of the past me. And it's a movement back to the familiar, back to what we've already learned and back to what's reassuring to us. And it's interesting because... What's reassuring doesn't always feel good. What's familiar, it's comfortable, even though it might be something we really dislike. My anxiety, my panic, my stress, my regret, my constant overthinking, 
it never felt good, but it was so familiar. It made me feel, I guess, in a way comfortable to at least know that I was being who I thought I was. I felt like I was at home when I was struggling and stressing. The more we mix ourselves up and our worth up with our past, then the more reactive we become. And as a way to transcend this cycle, I think it can be really powerful to just begin to notice these familiar feelings, the familiar thoughts and these habitual behavioural patterns. But do it with no judgment of ourselves and with no seeking payback for our work, no looking to see if it's working, just to do it to create this awareness. Conclusions we've made, feelings that we've felt, thoughts that we've conjured up, actions that we've taken, they all need to be constantly updated in terms of their meaning. Our younger versions of ourselves, they did their best, they gave their all. And what they chose in reactivity, we can now choose to release in response. We notice our old stances and our resistance, we accept and then we patiently tune into our passions and follow them instead. The longer that these old definitions remain unexplored, the more they grow roots. The more we feed them, the more solid and heavier they become. We become more and more sure of how things are and how they should be. We move further and further away from all that they can be. The more identified we become with what we believe, then the more our survival depends upon these beliefs. The more we have to defend them, fight for them, and the more we guess we become enslaved by them. And this survival mode for me is, it puts us in the most protective posture in terms of our body. And it's easy to see this by observing the way that we move or that people move just in going about their day. We rush, we look weighed down, we're hunched over at our waist, rounded forward at the shoulders, we're tense in our arms, our heads are lowered, our vision is hugely limited. We look as though we're simultaneously bracing ourselves for a big blow, but at the same time as readying for some kind of conflict or to run. And this, I think, is what competing, comparing and trying to prove our ideas of ourselves looks like. It's so tiring trying to be something that we're not the whole time. What all this self-protection does is hide away one of the most important things there is, and that's our hearts. It leaves us lost in thought and a shell of all that we can be. On a physical level, to transcend this cycle, we can notice how we stand, how we hold our bodies. And we can choose to stand differently and move differently. We can stand taller. We can straighten our necks, stand upright. We can open our eyes. We can push our chests out, loosen up. We can move slower with flow, with rhythm and with grace. Our hearts represent our true power. They represent that creativity, the beauty, the effortlessness, the love and the worth. But I get the impression that we dare not let them shine. We lead with our heads instead, forever checking that the coast is clear before we let the heart through. We can lead with the heart instead. We don't need it to seem rational according to our beliefs or those of society. This is a choice we can make, as difficult as it seems, especially when we feel under threat.
So living through the mind, intellectually driven, is to, I guess, have this need to constantly commentate or report on life. It's a position of constant analysis, contemplation and consideration of life. It's not to live it. Yes, we're full of old impressions and assumptions and all that we've seen and experienced. And some of it can act as quite valuable intel when we're trying to build things out of life, when we're trying to organise, plan, pack a bag, get ready for a trip or whatever it might be. But this intel, these things we've gathered, they're nothing to do with life. To inspire the willingness and devotion needed to, and the energy needed to transcend old ideas in a different direction, we can ask ourselves very honestly, are we here to think about life or are we interested in living it? Are we willing, therefore, to relax into our life? Are we courageous enough to breathe, to be patient and to trust instead in the unknown? But not just conditionally, when everything's done and all bases are covered, all stones turned, but actually in the thick of the discomfort, when the challenging feelings are right at the surface, begging us to feed them the way we always have done. Can we recognise these moments in real time as well, rather than always retrospectively once we flop onto the sofa in the evening and start talking about the incredibly long day we've had and the challenging people we've come across? In other words, it's inevitable that we all react. How long are we going to let ourselves react for? A moment, an hour, a day, a week? a lifetime, or even more. Whenever we can honestly see that our efforts to control our way through situations are not absolutely necessary, when we can become conscious that it's safe enough to step outside of those familiar habitual feelings, then we can begin to respect vulnerability and revere the unknown for the lifeblood it is. The shift from reacting to responding it just involves a shift in how we look at our discomfort and our challenge. We form a different relationship with these difficult feelings. It's a heart-informed relationship, one that allows them instead of tries to get rid of them, one that sort of welcomes them warmly with curiosity and compassion rather than the one that tries to somehow immediately solve them or fight them. My guest talks about the body being hugely aligned with the now. The first part that we work on is really getting people to listen to the body because the body, it lives in the present. And so when the mind is moving backwards and forwards between the past and the future, the, the body will only really do what it's told there and then and it believes what it's been told there and then. So when somebody is out playing and performing and they're feeling particularly stressed, it's teaching them different techniques, whether that is through breathing. We do a lot of tension release exercises. So a sophrology exercise will always start with breathing techniques that will help them to either relax if they need to relax or it'll help them to be more energized depending on what they need and there's always an intention for every sophrology exercise so we set the intention of what someone wants and then sort of work towards that and then we'll tend to do a body scan and that very much then helps them start to calm the brain waves down starting to get into that sort of alpha brain wave state and start 
starting to really relax and become aware and consciously aware of what's going on in their body. By noticing where these painful feelings are occurring, noticing what they really, really feel like, tuning our awareness into that subtle sensation and gently tracking their movement in a calm, composed and curious, caring way, we can gently set free these trapped definitions that the feelings hold. It doesn't always mean we get the light bulb, eureka moment answers to our old questions, but I think we do get the shift to a more flowing and beautiful space where the old questions are no longer anywhere near as relevant. An enlightened yogi once told me that he slept only two and a half hours a night. And when I asked him, how on earth do you recover? He replied, recover from what? He then went on to explain to me that pain is such a small thing for the body, but when the mind gets involved in it, it becomes suffering, which can dominate an entire lifetime experience. And it appears to me that our need to know ourselves in some kind of psychological way, to own this journey we're on mentally and intellectually, to get a grip on how we're doing the whole time, to prove ourselves to others, to have a story to tell, a story to promote. It all comes from an idea locked deep down inside, an idea that disconnects us from our true worth and value. The belief that we're somehow not deserving of the life we desire is what enslaves us to see, feel, think and react on behalf of it in service of guaranteeing its survival. It's only when we meet the unknown that we can reveal our ability to respond. So this means getting uncomfortable and our responsibility is our potential. Are we interested in uncovering it? The unknown as well is where all life exists. Are we interested in meeting it, in touching as much of it as we can? Is this predictable cycle that we're stuck in right now ever going to be enough? If you certainly look at toddlers, they don't care what anyone thinks of them and they are very much living far more in that sort of real essence of being because they don't have that sort of pressure on them. And I think certainly with sophrology, we tend to really say to people that you come at it with no judgment of yourself. So the idea is that you don't judge the fact that you can't feel anything or you don't judge the fact that you're not you're not doing it right. There's nothing to succeed at. And, and it's very much allowing, just allowing whatever it happens, whatever you experience, very much just allowing that to to be and then also just putting aside any sort of preconceived ideas that you might have so some people might think well I as you say you you try things and you force things and it hasn't worked and I I tried these techniques and it really didn't work and it's very much allowing yourself to clear the mind and sort of say okay but this is something different this is a new experience and then also it's being able to approach things really with curiosity and wonder and really as if it is for the first time as if you're like a child doing something for the first time because that's when you do start to really feel that ability to tap into what is in that sort of the subconscious and leave behind all those pressures and the more you do the exercises or the more you train the brain to go down those more positive neural pathways then the more that repeated experience comes about and absolutely it's definitely being able to sit with some of those feelings but also being able to 
understand that the, everyone has the capacity within them to be able to focus far more on, on the positive areas of life or to just be able to experience things as they are. It's We so often think we have to sort of have this positive or negative result, but actually sometimes it's just sitting with things and sometimes it is just experiencing them, seeing how the body responds, seeing what the mind's saying to us. Releasing physical, intellectual and emotional definitions from what has been in our past and from what is we think is coming in our futures and even redefining them according to what our goals are seems to be part of the sophrology offering and it's a big player in potential. Every little bit of space we create from dissolving these old limits, conclusions and boundaries, it contributes to giving us back a bit more of the power that belongs to our memory and our imagination and therefore I think the capacity to create the kind of lives we really dream of. Thank you so much to Alice for a fabulous experience, a fabulous discussion, for sharing everything you're into, everything you've uncovered, and everything that's coming for you as well. I love knowing that so many people are embracing this kind of inner work around the world. It fills me with amazing hope and excitement for the future. I really hope also that you enjoyed this episode and that you tune in for the Thursday episode to hear so much more about the mind, the body and the opportunities that sophrology holds within it. Please do keep sending your thoughts, your questions, your reviews. We're going to be doing a few specific question and answer episodes soon, I think as well. So if there's anything that's grabbing your attention or asking to be asked, then just let us know. Don't hold back. My name is Johnny Wilkinson. This is the I Am Podcast with Alice Bull. So that's it for another episode of I Am. It's brilliant to be sharing this unfolding experience with you all. If you'd like to get in touch with either me or the guest, then all the information you need is in the show notes. I welcome all and any feedback. I really want all of you to have a hand in guiding the feel of this show and the path of the conversation as well. So just keep them coming in. But until next time, I'm Johnny Wilkinson and this has been I Am. This show is brought to you by Mags Creative. The executive producer is Megan Hill-Smith. Assistant producer is Alex Macy. 